0: Good morning, if you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to uh, Luke 13, Luke 13, 1 to 9. While you're turning there, just uh, so you know, I'm going to be on very good behavior today. Uh, in our district, we have a superintendent, kind of like the big boss. He happens to be here today. Uh, a lot of you know him. Our new superintendent is John Payne from Good News, and he's in the middle section. I will go back to acting poorly next week. (laughs) Let's go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for your inspired, inerrant word. We thank you that we have the opportunity to read it, to buy your words and... The work of your spirit in our lives, to be equipped, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be transformed. And Father, we ask that that would take place. Father, as a nation, we think about our national election. And Father, we covenant that next week we will pray for whoever is placed in each of the offices. And we ask, Father, that you would guide our election and that you might bless our nation through the election. But regardless, Lord, we desire to pray for and show honor to those who are placed in positions of authority. Father, we also want to pray for Dan and Grace Esterline, who even right now are leaving Ethiopia after a number of weeks of missionary work, are heading back to the States and will arrive tomorrow. We ask, Father, for safety for them. We ask, Father, that the work that you have done through them would have lasting, even eternal implications. We pray for Dan's neck as being on a plane this long is very difficult for him. Strengthen him and encourage them. We look forward to hearing what you have done through them. Again, we ask that you would guide our time, O Lord. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. We are a society of the blame game. I'm not talking about you, of course, but as a society, we generally don't want to take responsibility for what we've done, what we've thought, how we've acted. We like to pass it on a society of the blame game. As I thought about this, I thought of a teenage young man. He was caught chewing tobacco in class against his particular school rules He was taken down to the principal's office, the chew still firmly embedded in his cheek. And as the principal asked him about it, the young man said, it's not my chew, I'm just holding it for a friend. (laughs) That's the blame game. We're not going to take responsibility for our actions. I remember living in Pennsylvania and there was a man, I knew him fairly well, He was an individual that was at Wendy's one day. He was leaning way far back in his chair. All four legs were not on the ground. He lost balance. He fell backwards. He injured himself pretty significantly. Shame on Wendy's. Shame on the chair. And he sued them and he won. The blame game. He would not take responsibility. For what was clearly his failure. Same area, there was a woman. She happened to attend the church I pastored. It was a Saturday in which there was absolutely no ministry going on in the church. The doors were locked except for a service door on the side. Where the individual who was cleaning the church would come in and out. That individual had mopped a floor... Even though the building was empty, she had placed one of those yellow teepee type signs making it clear that the floor was wet even though nobody was allowed in the building. This gal entered the building, slipped, and sued us. Actually, more accurately, she sued Church Mutual, which she made quite clear when she was confronted for suing her church, she said, I'm not suing you, I'm suing the insurance company. The blame game. One more example. I recently read about a man, not the sharpest knife in the book or in the drawer. He looked in the mirror after putting on his shirt and realized it was wrinkled. He got out the iron, he thought, you know, I can do this while wearing the shirt He ironed himself, was a little surprised at the new tattoo that was on his belly. He sued the iron company, but in fact, he lost, would not take responsibility. It is the blame game. I believe today's text, although the main point is not the blame game, the blame game is in today's text. Essentially, we are going to observe, we'll read it in a moment. We're going to observe that a tragedy takes place for some northern Jews, Galileans. This tragedy is known by some southern Jews from Jerusalem, and they're telling Jesus about the tragedy. Now understand that in the first century, if you lived in Jerusalem, you probably were raised to think very lowly of those in the north, the Galileans. They're the Jewish trash up north. And so with not a little bit of smugness, the southern Jews are telling Jesus of something that happened to some northern Jews. And essentially you get the feeling that they're saying, you know what? They're just getting what they deserve, their northern Jewish trash. And Jesus replies by saying, No. And then he goes on to say, But unless you repent, you too will perish. Verse 3 and verse 5, he says it twice. And just in case they're feeling real smug, Jesus then tells them about a tragedy that happens to southern Jews. No longer does the blame game work. The blame game works great when it's northern Jews. It doesn't work when it's southern Jews. Let's pick up in our text. I want to read verses 1 to 5 of today's uh, text. Verse 1. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans. Those are northern Jews whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans, the northern Jews, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, the emphatic position. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you also will likewise perish. Or those 18, now Jesus is gonna tell them a little on account. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam, that's Jerusalem, fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, emphatic position. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likely perish or likewise perish. Now what we have are two accounts that are otherwise unknown in history we have a first account in which some in the south, some Jerusalemites come to Jesus and they tell us about Pilate. Now we remember that Pilate is the fifth governor of this area of Israel. He is really a underling, a hireling. He answers to the Roman emperor who happens to be Tiberius Pilate will rule from 26 to 36 AD. Tiberius from 14 to 37 AD. Pilate is emotionally a little man, but he wants to be a big man, and he wants to pick fights. In fact, we know from a historian that's a contemporary that what we're about to read is his normal MO. The historian tells us that Pilate is responsible for a fair number of slaughters during the time in which he reigned. Now, we don't know the details, but we can actually put them together. We're told that some Galileans up north have their blood mingled with sacrifices that can only take place on the Temple Mount down south. Because of those two details, we know it's the Passover, We know that there are seven later when Hanukkah or Hanukkah is added, eight Jewish feasts. There are seven Jewish feasts. There's only one in which northern Galileans will travel south down to the Temple Mount to offer sacrifices. So we have a number of Galileans who have gone 70 miles south. They're up on the Temple Mount and something transpires that causes Pilate to put the northern Galileans to death. Now, at this point, we have to surmise what took place, but because of what we've seen other times in history, we have a pretty good handle of what likely took place. We know that emotionally, little man Pilate often took a number of Roman soldiers with him up onto the Temple Mount. That was asking for riot. In addition to that, we know that he not only took the Romans up, but they would come with all of their insignia all over their flags, including some pictures which were considered idolatrous. So here we have little emotional man, Pilate, trying to act like a big man. He goes up on Passover to the Temple Mount, and with him, he takes some images, some idols, and of course, a riot ensues. Now, in this particular case, the riot obviously ensues with some Galileans. The result is that Pilate has the Galileans put to death, and their blood mingles with the blood of sacrifices that are being offered up on the Temple Mount. That's clearly what has taken place. And so we have some Jerusalemites, some southern Jews who know about this because it took place in their area. And they come up to Jesus and they tell Jesus about it. Now it's kind of hard to realize from my English text how smug the intent is. But it's clearly a smug intent. And they're kind of saying to Jesus, you know, the Galileans probably acted properly. They probably got it right. They probably should have confronted Pilate. And we know that Pilate put them to death. Well, I think, and this is how you have to read between the lines, but almost all scholars agree that this is what's going on with the smugness of this interplay. The Jerusalemites are saying, you know, they acted right, but they were put to death. We think God the Father allowed them to be put to death because, well, They're northern Jews, they're they're Jewish trash. They're just getting what they deserve. And Jesus says, No. But unless you repent, you also or likewise will perish. And then Jesus gives us a second account. It's a second account that also is not found elsewhere in history but we know that the account has all the historical markers that we would expect. We know that the historicity, and we believe this anyway, but we know the historicity is true. This second account takes place in Jerusalem at the Pool of Siloam where the temple of, or the Tower of Siloam is located. Interestingly enough, we have identified this location in 1920, We unearthed the old wall. Uh, This wall is 5,000 years old. It was a Jebusite wall before David took it over, about 1,000 B.C. We have unearthed this wall, and we have discovered that at about this time period, an aqueduct is being built by the pool of Siloam to bring fresh water to the rest of Jerusalem. We also have found the ruins of the Tower of Siloam, so we know that it was also located there. Putting it all together, it's pretty clear what was going on. They're building an aqueduct. There's a tower there that's been there for some time, and while building the aqueduct, somehow they probably upset the foundation of the Tower of Siloam, and it collapsed. And the boulders came down in eighteen. Jerusalemites were killed. So when the Jerusalemites tell the story to Jesus about those up north who have died, Jesus said, you've got it wrong, no, but unless you look at yourself, you too will likely perish. Then he tells them another story. In other words, the blame game doesn't really work, does it? It doesn't work when you have all of the deaths among yourself. So what exactly is going on? Jesus' point is not the blame game. That's not what he's getting at. Twice, he says no, emphatic position. Twice, he's saying the stories, they matter, but that's not what you need to get out of the text. Unless you repent, you likewise will perish. That's what Jesus wants them. That's what he wants us to get from the text. What Jesus is saying is this. 100% of humanity is going to die. 100%. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed under man to die once, after that the judgment. A small number of people are going to die through a tragedy like murder. Pilate murdering those up north. A small number of people are going to die through a tragedy that's an accident. The temple falling, or the tower falling on the Jews. But 100% of us are going to die. So 100% of us, need to prepare our hearts to meet our maker. All of us, that's you, that's me, that's everyone in this room, all of us are going to meet our maker. And unless the rapture occurs during our lifetime, all of us will face 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy, and we need to be prepared. And the only way that you and I can be prepared is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus, God, becoming man, the God-man. Dave used the word incarnation. He became fully man along with fully God. So we have two fullies simultaneously. That's the incarnation, God becoming man and dwelling among us. He lived a perfect life then he laid down his life as a payment of sin that we need to believe in him as savior his death as a penalty of our sin to be given eternal life 2 Corinthians 5:21 reads as follows for our sake don't move past that for our sake he doesn't do it for himself He does it for us. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin for us that through him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the point of the first five verses. As I thought about this, I thought of something that took place on October 15 and 16 and 17 in the year 1987. It took place in Midland, Texas. Here we have baby Jessica McClure. And baby Jessica falls down 22 feet, an empty cistern or well that is unstable. And she's down there for 55 hours. You probably remember the event if you were old enough at that time. A nation was arrested wondering what 18-month-old Jessica McClure would do, how she would respond. Would she perish? They didn't know how to get down this cistern because the ground was not safe. And if you remember the account, 18-month Jessica, with her little toes and her little fingers, clawed her way up those 22 feet And she rescued herself. But that's not what happened, is it? You're probably wondering what I smoked this morning. (laughs) 18-month-olds can't claw their way up a cistern. It can't happen. Why? Because she's helpless. She's powerless. So are you. Romans 5, 6 says, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Baby Jessica was utterly powerless. She needed to be rescued or she would perish. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand from the text. We are utterly powerless on our own. There's no way that we can reach a perfect holy God, no matter what we offer him, We've got nothing to offer God that he needs. We have nothing to offer God that impresses him. That's why Jesus died in our place. That's the first step to be ready. That's why Jesus says, no, no, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. The second part of the text is the second part, having been justified, declared righteous through faith in Christ. Then we work on the sanctification, living out our justification, living out our faith before God, and that's verses six to nine. Allow me to read them. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. I want us to consider the parable. The man clearly represents God. The gardener or the vine dresser clearly represents Jesus. The fig tree represents professing Christ followers. Now we have to understand when you plant a fig tree, the first three years, there really is no fruit. But once you hit year four, Fruit begins to come in abundance. And so there's a lot of fruit, years four, five, six, and following. So here we have a fig tree, a professing Christ follower. And we're in year six. For the first three years, the man, God, doesn't really expect a lot of fruit. Maybe a little, but not much. Nothing to brag about, nothing to get excited about. But he comes in year four, and there really is no real fruit. He comes in year five, and there really is no real fruit. He comes in year six, and there really is no real fruit. And the man, who is God, says to the gardener, who is Jesus, this tree isn't bearing fruit. It's not authentic. Cut it down. I hope we're getting a bit alarmed. And then Jesus says, Let, let's, let's go year seven. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. Let, let's, let's go a little bit further. In fact, let's invest in this tree. Dig around it, aerate it, put some manure, put some fertilizer. Let me really invest in this tree. At the end of year seven, if there's no fruit, we'll We'll discard it. It wasn't real. And that's the second part of what God wants us to hear in the text. He wants us to hear that when we place our faith in Christ, verses 1 to 5, there should be fruit, certainly by year 4, year 5, year 6, year 7. And on. There needs to be fruit in my life. There needs to be fruit in yours. As I think about this text, I think of three things. The first thing that crosses my mind that we ought to interact with is this word repent. It's found in verse 3 and in verse 5. Jesus says, No, but unless you repent, You likewise will perish. What does this word repent mean? Sometimes I think there's a bit of confusion. It's the word metanoia, or here it's metanoia tie. It's a word that means change. And I believe that there are at least three aspects of repentance there's an intellectual aspect, there's an emotional aspect, and there's a volitional aspect intellectual, emotional, and volitional. The intellectual aspect of repentance is agreement with God. We call it confession. It's the first C. We need to say, you know, Lord, you're right. What I'm doing is sin. I'm going to stop making excuses. I'm going to stop finding reasons why what I'm doing is not sin, even though you say it's sin. I'm going to agree with God. I'm going to confess. That's intellectual. Next is emotional. That's contrition. This is not only agreeing with God, but it is godly sorrow. This is where I say, you know, I not only agree with you, Lord, but there's got to be transformation in my life because what I'm doing is wrong and it's, it's impacting my relationship with you. It's impacting my relationship with others. There is godly sorrow in my life. And then there's a volitional aspect, and that's change. Change. Confession, contrition, change. This is where I go to God and the power of God's spirit, and I ask him to help me to turn from sin and towards righteousness. That's what God wants us to get out of the text. He wants us to understand that when we sin, we need all three aspects. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm going to illustrate it with a sin that's not in your life. Probably the person behind you, but not in your life. Let's suppose for a moment the person behind you or in front of you has problems with gossip. They hear tidbits, titillating pieces of information about someone else. Now, if we have the intellectual, we agree with God. We stop making excuses. We stop saying, Lord, (laughs) the reason I shared this is so so so-and-so could pray more intelligently. I'm going to stop making excuses. I've sinned. I've taken information that's not mine. I've passed it on to somebody that doesn't need to know. Then there's got to be godly sorrow. I've got to realize that When I gossip, my relationship with the Lord is impugned. It's damaged. My relationship with someone else is damaged. And then there's got to be change. In the power of God's spirit, I go to the one wrong. I ask for forgiveness. Maybe I have accountability in my life, and I have someone asking me, future going forward, Jeff, how are you doing in the area of gossip? Repentance is confession, contrition, and change. That's the first thing I want to draw from the text. The second thing I want to draw from the text is that the blame game doesn't work, especially when it comes to our relationship with Lord. The blame game doesn't work. I don't say to the Lord, you know what? (laughs) I'm I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as, and I put somebody else out there. As long as I'm a little better than so-and-so, I can't be all that bad. I'm I'm going to make it with God. The blame game doesn't work. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's suppose that uh, you and I and three others take a walk into the woods. We're just going for a casual walk. We're walking through the woods. And you've heard this illustration before. Nothing new. So uh, we come across a hungry seven-foot bear. And we look like barbecue. And I think to myself, I can't outrun the bear. But I don't need to. I just have to outrun one of you. That's all I have to do. Because if I outrun one of you, the bear will attack you. And I'm in the clear. And I sometimes play this game with God. I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be better than. And I fill in the blank with someone who's not as good. But the blame game never works with God. The Jerusalemites are trying to play the blame game because they're better than the Jewish trash in their minds up north. And Jesus responds by reminding them 18 who perish down south. The blame game doesn't work. We all equally need to fall upon the mercy of God. Finally, verses 6 to 9, God expects fruit. If you... If I, if we are true Christ followers, he expects fruit in our life. If we have just said a prayer and there's no transformation, there's no change, there's no godly sorrow, there's no contrition, then we have probably uttered words without heartfelt change, without real faith. God expects fruit. What kind of fruit? The options are many. Many. I think of just the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23. for the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I've got to ask myself, are some of these fruit evident in my life? Is there change over time in one, two, three of these areas that God might be working on? At another point, he might be working on another one, two, or three. Am I seeing progress empowered by God's spirit? Am I seeing fruit? Other fruit might be regular confession before the Lord, keeping short accounts. That's the grow, connect, grow, go. That's growing with the Lord. It might be regular time of devotion and prayer. That's also growing, connect, grow, go, spending time in the word. It might be going and sharing the gospel with others. That's the going part. It might be joining a small group. That's the connect and grow part. We can fill in the blank in many, many legitimate ways, but the truth of the matter is, if you and I know Christ, he's expecting fruit. And obviously we're given a little pass early on. We're not given a pass by year four, five, and six. And I wouldn't take that as a clear line to say that the first three years, I don't have to do anything. And I got to kind of ease in and use years four, five, and six. But to whom much is given, much more is expected. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more fruit God expects in my life. And the more fruit... He expects in yours. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for these rather obscure accounts, historical to be sure, but obscure, that remind us that we need a personal, individual relationship with your son Jesus. And if some today do not know your son as Savior, I pray that you would give them faith to believe, as we all must, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And to accept your son Jesus' death as a payment of each of our sin as we confess and believe. And then, Father, may we constantly repent and turn from our sin. May we live out our faith. May you bear fruit in and through us. May we never be satisfied where we are in our walk, but always be spurred on by your spirit to take that next step in our relationship with you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.